welcome to This Week in Sustainability. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. There's been a lot going on this week, so let's get right to it. Contemplating a return to normality has become a big topic in the mainstream press, and by that I mean what happens at the end of COVID-19, the pandemic, or at least uh, that moment where we no longer have to stay put in our homes all the time. Some are contemplating a return to normal or the way the world was December 31st, 2019. Others are contemplating a brave new world, a greener world, a more equal world, a world that cooperates more and fights and works together more than they fight each other and divide one another. Just like a good movie plot, both of these outcomes are possible, though I think the former is less plausible than the latter. But I'm a cynic, but never a cynic without evidence. Uh, we will likely see some change, I, I believe, as a result of the pandemic. But I would argue a return to normal will outweigh a return to something bright and new and more sustainable. Well, why? Well, simply because 1% of the population controls far too many of the assets in this world to expect much change. The existing capitalist and political systems simply serve asset owners' needs far too well, and far too few of them, not all, but far too few of them, see a better, carbon-neutral, more equal future as a part of their business models. It was shocking to see, for example, Sir Richard Branson asking for $500 million in a bailout of his businesses, including Virgin Air. Do you believe he will and, and can even change his business model? In France, as I mentioned last week on This Week in Sustainability, the French government uh, was going to condition part of their bailout money to Air France to cutting their carbon emissions by 50% by 2030. Well, so far, this is among the boldest and biggest and most direct conditioning of business models and bailout financing to something more sustainable than what we had prior to the pandemic, despite all the calls for a greener bailout. Well, amongst most capitalists, Branson and the likes of him, the likes of Branson, are, well, shall we say, the most enlightened and open in terms of understanding and implementing elements of sustainability in their business activities. The, the most that is willing to make great change to think outside the current capitalist box or boxes. Now, I imagine the changes he would make would be less than substantial, unfortunately. Uh, by that, I mean transformational from unequal nature destroying wreck of economy and political system that we currently have. And most capitalists prefer to something more sustainable. After all, they want their assets and to attend Davos too. We must remember most capitalists seek to accumulate first and then return a pittance through philanthropy. And even those uh, who are committing, even those billionaires, for example, who are committing to giving up at least 50% of their wealth continue to underwrite the viability of this form of capitalism with the unstated premise that they can solve the world's problems with a marginal part of their own marginal returns on their business activities. Now, we know this will not cut it. This will not cut it, neither for climate change or biodiversity loss. And particularly, it's not going to help even up social and economic inequality. Now, I'm not saying capitalism has to go. No, the innovation, motivation, and creation that are part of capitalism are key to advancing, quote, unquote, human civilization. But unless capitalists decide it's in our interest 
to reintegrate our, ourselves back into nature. By that, I mean using fewer resources than we take out of nature as we go along about our lives. This brand of capitalism, the accumulate more than you can ever need in a million lifetimes capitalism, is simply not viable. If capitalism won't change, then we need eco-governments, uh, which put up and enforce strong environmental and equality safeguards, railings, and incentives. It's hard to see just how that would happen when the Koch brothers strategy, the tangled web of interest groups, dark and light, dominates all things political. I use the term Koch brothers metaphorically, of course. Not really. Well, maybe. Think about it. how hard will it be to change these vested interests with near unlimited pockets? And today, for example, the Trump campaign has spent nearly a billion dollars to reelect the president. And we haven't even reached the expensive part of the campaign yet. That money doesn't come from mom pa voters, to be sure, right? because they prefer to buy the $5 MAGA hats. Anyways, even among the more enlightened capitalists, it's hard to see how the multidimensional and rather interconnected elements of our unsustainable economy could be addressed. Now take Elon Musk, for example. He, like Branson, is amongst the more credible capitalist crusaders for a more just and sustainable world. Uh, it's a great thing he's doing with cars and batteries. Believe me, he's propelled the electric car market further than any other single actor. And in some countries like Norway and China, electric vehicles will be the single highest selling type of car. It's our hope that Musk's elegant cars, and they're pretty nice, but the truck, wow, that's kind of weird looking, will help rid the world of carbon-emitting internal combustion engines forever. But what of urban sprawl and the social inequalities personal transportation vehicles have created? Individual transportation has had a terrible impact on unsustainable living and housing models. Uh, similarly, massive energy projects his technology will facilitate uh, through his battery technology and the continued concentration of capital in the energy business will favor big utilities. New ones and old ones, of course. It'll be favored over decentralized community grids. This will cement in place, and here I am the cynic again, and I'm speculating, but new even if carbon-free vested interests, said provocateur ex-secretary of labor uh, under the President Clinton administration, Robert Reich, in a recent Nation of Change article. The truth is American corporations are sacrificing workers and communities as never before in order to further boost runaway profits and unprecedented CEO pay. And not even a tragic pandemic is changing that all that much. Emphasis added. Uh, the first step, he said, is to see corporate social responsibility for what it is. It is a sham. The next step is to emerge from the pandemic and economic crisis more resolved than ever to rein in corporate power and to make the economy work for all. Well, that's well said. To return to even close to what was pre-COVID normal is literally, literally a death sentence for the human species and many, many other species as well. There is only one solution, reintegrate humans back into nature, not just become car carbon neutral, not even resource net neutral, but to catalyze a regeneration of nature. That's the only viable goal uh, for humans, and in part the, the subject of an article I wrote recently on my way back from the Philippines, uh, just prior to the COVID lockdown. My editor said the article uh, was a bit disturbing, so I warn you in advance, but I hope it's reflective of our role in nature as one of millions and millions of species and not just the species. 
So sit back and relax, here's my article. Memo to a dying species, Homo sapiens secret code to survival. Well, on my way back from Manila to Mexico, I transited via San Francisco. It was mid-March and a number of people like myself had congregated at a bar, perhaps for the last time in a long while, chatting nervously about the emerging coronavirus pandemic. Suddenly, uh, a woman appeared, uh, literally out of nowhere. She had a gauzy scarf wrapped loosely in many layers about her neck over a silvery dress, cocktail dress, set off by spidery web gold earrings and a necklace. She said nothing at first, standing there, kind of like wisdom personified, listening to the rest of us cocking her head from one side to the other, whilst enjoying her cocktail. Then, as suddenly as she had appeared, and without any due hesitation, she announced this thing, pausing the first look, it's a culling of the herd. It's nothing personal. She drained her drink, lipped her lips, looked at each one of us in turn, mysteriously whispered something, some words none of us could hear, turned and walked away without a glance. Stunning. Stunning was the only word to use, both her presence and her pronouncement. Most shocking was her truth. The virus is a culling of our herd. We are mammals and we are a herd of 8 billion people. She spoke truth to our supposed and rather arrogant power. Culling is what nature does. It gets rid of the weakest. It tests species survivability. It's nothing personal. She was right. Nature tests all species all the time. Just because we're highly sensitive human beings, highly sensitive to life and death, more so than most of our other fellow species on this planet, we shouldn't feel, we shouldn't feel singled out. Nature only wants what's best for all Unlike other species, Homo sapiens take threats to their lives in a deeply personal way. A dog, a dog will fight for its life to the end, but not think once, why me? A fungi, even less so. But Homo sapiens, we don't like nature's tests very much. We see all life, young, old, firm, infirm, as equally precious. It is a morality-based prime directive, not a natural imperative. So if Homo sapiens choose to protect every one last of its members, that's their decision. If the strategy works within nature's greater scheme, well, it works. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Nature could care less. Now, the coronavirus is nature's latest assault on human survivability. Though a nearly unique assault, it is not a singular test. It's just another means to perfection both of nature and our own species. It's a test defined by the enduring indelible treaty of ecological balance of all species. If one species gets too strong, nature finds a way to cut it back with zero compunction towards culling that herd. And it does this to save both the species it attacks and to ensure balance in the ecosystem to save and strengthen all others. Just ask the lemmings how that works. Survival of the fittest? Well, yes, in a way, but in the most literal sense, it's a bit misleading, that phrase. Rather, it's survival of the best adapter. Uh, many species are weak, but survive quite nicely, for example, without the strength of a gorilla or the mental capacity of a dolphin or a human being. Cockroaches can be squished with your foot if you're fast enough, but are among the few species that might survive a nuclear holocaust. Could Homo sapiens? Bill McGibbons of 350.org recently said, we cannot argue with the laws of biology and physics. And like the mysterious lady in the silver dress, well, he's not wrong. 
But if you think our survivability vector is defined by natural science alone, you'd only be half right. Homo sapiens have come to dominate the world's economic system not by transcending mechanical laws of nature, but through ever greater incremental knowledge of them. Have we unlocked all the secrets of physics and biology? No, though our abilities to see smaller and further grows daily. This increases our knowledge of how to manipulate and exploit nature, but it's not our secret to survival. The secret is our guiding moral codes, which are imbued with survival instincts, part of which tells us human life, our own and our loved ones, is to be guarded at all costs. It's a powerful sentiment learned from hard lessons over centuries of conflict that also makes being human such a human experience. But this code, in combination with our growing understanding of nature, is also possibly our greatest survivability Achilles heel as well. Not that long ago, our limited grasp of nature's mechanics and related technical capacities so severely restricted our ability to gather and store resources, we were forced to put our infirm and elders on the proverbial ice flow. Well, we didn't like it much, but there wasn't much we could do about it either. And now, of course, we apply massive resources, more than nature can withstand, to keep all members of the tribe alive as long as possible at almost any cost. It is perhaps the highest achievement of our moral, if somewhat sentimental, prime directive. The current pandemic is pretty clear about how difficult and, frankly, unnatural this strategy is as older, sicker, and poorer people are suffering disproportionately from COVID-19 and its economic impacts. Someone on Twitter set off a viral storm a couple weeks ago claiming homo sapiens are the virus. That's nonsense. We're just doing what we do to survive. Our ethical systems are not by accident. They're a vital part of our survival toolkit. Sure, interesting warfare breaks out between the clans from time to time, but a common set of principles teaches us coming together and valuing our own is usually preferable to mortal aggression. Rules give Homo sapiens a framework, albeit elements that are variously weak or strong, depending on the context and clan, for working together, for solving common problems, for, to, to better the chances for all of the species, really. Killing our own or ourselves for the common good is simply not acceptable, even though, and regrettably, we have engaged in this as well. But as a tenant, we don't like it. It's too much of a slippery slope trying to decide who lives and who dies on the basis of resource availability. So we extend and protect life as best we can. Our ethics have been successful. It's a successful part of our survival strategy. And if not for their dictums, we might still be knocking about in small warring tribes on the savannah or at best bunkered down behind the walls of fetid medieval city-states. By working together, Homo sapiens have solved millions of problems we couldn't possibly have done so individually. This has made us materially very well off. We have multiplied successfully, battling and winning nature's constant tests, and in the process, taking a disproportionate share of natural resources to the great disadvantage of other species. Each year, Homo sapiens, we use more resources than are generated by nature by a factor of four. No other species comes close to this level of exploitation and related destruction even in the most local of habitats. And nature's global carrying capacity is in severe and massive disequilibrium. And we wonder why nature is responding with climate change and coronavirus. 
Well, that's it for part one of Memo to a Dying Species, Homo Sapiens' Secret Code to Survival. Tune in next week for part two. If you've not signed up for our weekly content updates, you can do so at thesustainablecentury.net. We'd love to hear from you. So leave a comment or hit the like button or better yet, pass the article, pod, or video along. And if you haven't checked, haven't already done so, check out a new video by our producer director, Mateos D'Souza Shields, on why you should garden. It's a lot of fun. And why you should garden not just in times of coronavirus. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of This Week in Sustainability. And remember, it's up to you, it's up to me, it's up to us to make this a happier, healthier, more sustainable world. Thanks again.